Peter, and I'm bringing you the Bible reading this morning. This morning it comes from Luke chapter 2, and we're reading verses 1 to 21. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. Morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Brendan, according to the bulletin. Brendan has an infection in his throat. He spoke at the first service, but on Thursday night, he, uh, on Thursday he said that he didn't think he'd be able to do the talk. He needed to rest his throat up. So because Pastor Charlie was leading, the lot fell to me. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 2 in a minute. We're going to work our way through the text, examine it a little bit more closely. Um, but let me also say thank you to... Liana especially, but to all of the KIP, the teachers and helpers, those who help out in kids' church. As you could see from that video, um, obviously a couple of boys were not aware that that was being filmed. (laughs) The evidence is now there for the parents. uh, And depending on the offering, we'll either be selling that to the parents or making it available. It's challenging, isn't it? And I'm quite sure that it's not always just boys who behave like that. I think those girls are very smart. I think they knew the camera was uh, filming them, and I think they were on their absolutely best behaviour 
They refused to be distracted by anything that anybody else did. They stayed focused, which I'm sure is what they're always like. I'm a little tired myself this morning. I feel like the star that's hanging on the top of the Christmas tree over here to your right. (laughs) Poor thing should just about make it through the service. We're going to pray. Thanks, Heavenly Father. We have the opportunity, the wonderful opportunity to gather together to encourage each other to listen to you and to your word. And though, Lord, this is a familiar story, it still contains great truth, great depth to it that we haven't even begun to plunge. This morning, we pray you'll take us just a little bit deeper, open our eyes a little bit more to see the wonder and the amazement of what you have done in coming to save us. Speak to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said? So like I said, we're just going to, I'm going to initially, let's remind ourselves of the Christmas story, and we're going to do that by working through just verse by verse, and I'll make a comment. I'm really just going to interrogate the text. This is, I sat down on uh, Friday and yesterday, and I just read the text, and I just kept asking myself questions. And for some of them I got answers to, and for many of them I don't have the answers because we don't have the information, and it's because we don't need to know it. But having interviewed the text, if you like, then we also want to um, make some practical applications to our lives. Every birth is important, isn't it? Because another human soul is coming to the world. Every birth is wonderful, but this birth birth of the Lord Jesus is absolutely marvellous. And because we've heard it, because we know it, we're familiar with it, and sometimes that becomes boring for us. It can become over-familiar, and we lose the amazement of it. And there's probably a couple of reasons for that. But this one is absolutely wonderful. It's a miracle that God himself became a babe, a child. That in order that, as a fully human he could open the door to heaven so that we could have God's life with him in the next age, in eternity. So that's the wonder of this incredible story. So let's jump in. So Mark, if you've put the... Yep, thank you. And I'll just read the verse out and follow it along. You've got your own Bible in front of you. That would be good. Some of this you're going to be familiar with. Some of it you're not going to be familiar with. Um, Some of my questions may be your questions, and some of my questions may, in fact, irritate you. (coughs) Welcome to my wife's world. Verse 1 tells us, and Luke is a marvellous historian. He's the only gospel writer, in fact, who names any of the emperors. He goes out of his way to place this in space-time history. It's because this thing is true. It really happened. It's not a myth, it's not a legend, it's not simply a nativity scene play that kids put on, it's not fabricated, it's not just a heartwarming story, it's true, it actually happened. And Luke tells us, uh, Caesar, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. We know who that Caesar is, that's Octavian, he's the guy who followed after Anthony and Cleopatra were defeated. He's the first emperor of the Roman Empire, the first official emperor. We know that he lived, he reigned from about 30 BC till about 14 AD, a long reign in which he brought order and structure to the empire. And one of the things that he instituted and that followed his reign, every 14 years, they had a census. 
The Roman census was for two reasons. One was to uh, taxation purposes. You would, uh, however you would do it, and they did it in different provinces in different way. And in the province, Judea is actually in the province of Syria. And in Syria, the way they did it is the people returned to the place of their ancestral birth. You may not have been born there, but whatever family line you're in, that's where you returned. There would have been some movements, definitely, but many people in those days didn't travel like we do. They didn't move around a lot. The chances of them being in the same place where they were born, is, uh, where their grandfathers were born, is going to be pretty high. Uh, but in this particular instance, uh, there has to be some movement. Uh, two reasons for the census. One is taxation. So you'd return, you would write your name down, your family name down, your occupation down. It was recorded, it was registered. And the second purpose of the uh, census was to ascertain who were the young adult males for recruitment purposes for the Roman armies as they wanted to expand the empire. And of course, the Jewish people were exempt from that because of their religious beliefs. They would not fight on the Sabbath, which made them highly ineffective when you wanted to be part of the army. So the, the Romans just gave up and said, oh, forget it. We won't conscript any of you um, to the services. So in those days, Caesar Augustus. Then in verse 2, we're also told, Luke tells us, and there's a bit of a problem here. Uh, this was the first census that took place while this bloke called Quirinius was governor of Syria. The problem is, Quirinius was governor of Syria, but he's governor of Syria later. Too late. And so there have been three or four different answers given. None of them are fully satisfactory, but you'll notice... Uh, I don't think you've got footnotes on your screen, but if you've got a Bible in front of you, then... Just before Quirinius is the word while, and the NIV, it depends on how you read the Greek text, it actually translates it as this was the census that took place before Quirinius was governor. That's one of the four solutions that have been offered, and it's quite likely. The difficulty is this. Luke has a reputation, very well established now for the last 100, 150 years, of being a very reliable historian. When Luke says something, it's been proven to be correct. He hasn't yet made an historical mistake that we know of. This one, we still can't answer it fully. But back in the time when he wrote it, of course, um, they would have understood more clearly than what we do and the sources that we have. So that's probably the most likely one. The one prior to that understanding of the Greek text was that Quirinius was in fact governor twice and Luke's talking about the very first one. This is the first census. There was another one, Acts chapter 537 refers to it. Um, this is the first one when Quirinius was somehow involved. Anyway, verse 3, and so everyone who had to go went to their own town to register, whereas I said before their, um, their name, their father's name, family name and their occupation would have been recorded. Um, Verse 4 focuses upon our couple. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, which is his local town. That's where he is from. That's where he will return in a few years. That's where Jesus will be raised, but it's not where he was born. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David. Why? Because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Matthew chapter 1 tells us that. And it's an aside, no one have time to go into all of these all the time. 
But while Joseph was the legal line, there was a curse placed on a guy by the name of Jeconiah, Jeremiah chapter 22 and Matthew chapter 1, verses I think 11 and 12, that God said, after you, none of your descendants will sit on the throne. And yet that's the lineage that goes down to Joseph. If you look at Luke 3, Luke tells us there was a break in that line that not only went to Joseph, there's another descendant in the line of David which goes through Mary. And so Jesus becomes the king of Israel through the line, David's line, but the one that passes through Mary, not the one that passes through Joseph. And of course, that fits beautifully because Joseph is not really Jesus' father. Virgin birth. It's amazing how God oversees, orchestrates and fulfills his word and promises, as this passage refers to a couple of times. So Joseph goes up. We don't know how long the journey took. It's around about 120 to 150 kilometres. She was pregnant. How pregnant? Don't know. Uh, was she in her ninth month? Don't know. How long were they there before she gave birth? I don't know. Um, did she ride a donkey? Maybe. Did they have a donkey? Were donkeys deer in those days? Probably. They walked everywhere quite possible she walked. It would have been a very slow walk, I would expect, for a lady who was some months pregnant. Um, but nonetheless, they made the journey. And it's absolutely amazing that the God who organised all of this, who orchestrated all of this, who predicted all of this, doesn't make a booking for them. Because when they get to Bethlehem, Bethlehem's a small village, 350 to 400 people, think that size. How do I know that? Well, because back in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 23, it says there are 123 men who lived in Bethlehem. It's a small town, it's a small village, even though the Bible calls it the city of David. Uh, it gets that reputation because of who came from there. It's where Rachel is buried, it's where David was born, it's where Jesus was born. So it's called, it has a big reputation, but it's, back then it was a small, tiny little village. Verse 5 then says to us, uh, he went there to register with Mary. Why did Mary go? Well, in Roman law, you had to register not just the men, but also the women. The women didn't have to go, but in this case, Mary went with him. And even though it would have been difficult, why do you think she went? Guess. Because if she had the baby while he was away, who could imagine what would have happened to her? Gossip? harm there could have been a story spread that he's abandoned her that he's left her and all this who knows anything like that could have happened so I personally think he took Mary with him because he was protecting her now notice what Luke says it's strange he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child she wasn't pledged to be married to him she was married to him when you read Matthew, it says that he was going to divorce her secretly and he had a dream, he slept and God sent an angel. And the angel said, she hasn't been mucking around. This is from the Holy Spirit. This is God's miracle in her life. What she's telling you is the truth. And when Joseph woke up, he what? He married her straight away. But they would have been betrothed, engaged for this 12-month period. So how far into the period? Oh, I don't know, halfway will do, I'm guessing. And he marries her here. So the betrothal period is not finished. Perhaps that's what Luke is hinting at. Or more likely, 
This is Luke's way of very subtly revealing that while they were married, because she would not be travelling with him alone if she wasn't married, that wouldn't have happened. So the fact they're travelling together indicates there is a relationship, marriage. But she had not slept with him, Matthew tells us that. Well, Matthew got up and married her straight away. They did not sleep together until after the birth of their first child. So there would be no confusion about where this child come from. And that's what I think Luke is subtly hinting at. While they were married, they had not yet slept together. They're still in that betrothed state, sexually speaking. Verse 6. While they were there in Bethlehem, at whatever location, the time came for the baby to be born. She's reached full term. She gives birth to her firstborn. Luke actually emphasises that for us. She gave birth to her son, the firstborn one, which implies she would have other sons. And we know she did. Jesus had four brothers. We even know their names. Matthew 13, verse 55. And he had sisters. We don't know how many, but at least two, because Matthew and Mark use the plural, sisters. So Mary was not a perpetual virgin, contrary to some churches' teaching. She had other ones, but Jesus is the firstborn son. It says she wrapped him in cloths and she placed him in a manger, which is very normal. It's what they did in those days, that a, a lady would give birth. There would often be other midwives there, just like us today. But in this case, there is no midwife. And the fact that it says that she did it herself led some foolish Catholic priest in the Middle Ages to suggest that therefore when she gave birth to Jesus there was no labour and there was no pain because she had the energy to be able to wrap him. Fool. Only a Catholic priest would think like that, wouldn't he? No idea. Women all through history have given birth and they have straight afterwards been caring for their own children. Such is the stamina of women. Do I get brownie points for this? <laughs> I want you to notice something that I learnt this week. I shared it with the craft people. She wrapped him and then laid him in a manger. When Jesus came into the world, he was wrapped and placed. When Jesus left the world, he was wrapped and placed. Interesting, isn't it? It says that she placed him in a manger. What's a manger? As far as we know, it's a feeding trough. It can't be dogmatic. That's our best guess. Luke does use the word in another context on the lips of Jesus, actually in Luke chapter 13, verse 15. It talks about uh, oxen and donkeys being tied up to a manger. So that fits with the idea of a feeding trough. One biblical scholar wants to suggest what it actually is, is, you know, the feeding bags that they put on horses? Hello? You know, you know grunt, grind, do anything. I don't, don't mind. Um, some scholars think that's what it is. And that she's taken one of those feeding type bags and she's laid that on top of hay and Mary has placed Jesus on that. Either way, the context is certainly where animals are present. 
And the chances are very high that it's, a, it's probably a stable, but we don't know that. We surmise that because of the use of this word manger. It's likely. It's also likely that when they went to the local Bethlehem motel in the Golden Chain that was in Bethlehem at the time, no, it wasn't, there was, there was an inn, Traveller's Inn of some sort, but there was no room, there was no vacancy, it was all full up. That's what we're told in a little while. There was no room available, no guest room available for them. So she places him in a manger, which becomes significant in this story as we move through. Where are we up to? So that's how Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem. That's how we have the Lord Jesus is born and we have him placed in incredibly humble circumstances. Then we change focus to these incredible guys. Probably God-fearing shepherds, but we don't know a lot about them. Verse 8 says that there were shepherds living out in the fields. Some people wanted some ice from that. Okay, so now we know the time of the year. Shepherds lived out in the fields during the spring and the summer. Well, that's generally true. But it's not conclusive evidence because there is a biblical reference, Genesis 31. There's also historical evidence to indicate that sometimes the shepherds were out in the fields even when it was winter. It wasn't normal, but it did happen. And so if you want to draw from this that therefore Jesus wasn't born in December, you, can't, you can argue it, but it's not a very conclusive argument. All we know is they're living out in the fields and they're nearby Bethlehem. The chances are very high that the sheep they're looking after are the sheep that would be taken to the Jewish temple just five, six miles away and that they would be used in the Passover type temple sacrifices. Um, so that's quite... It's not just possible, it's highly likely Um, so they're keeping watch over their flocks and we know it's night time the shepherds uh, in that time of the world they would go at night time they would the shepherds would come together different flocks and that they would then sleep and the way they did that is they would share the responsibilities of guarding the sheep at night both from robbers but also from wolves and they would go on to a shift there were four watches during the night from 6 p.m until about 9 9 till 12 12 to 3 three to six. During one of those watches, which one? Don't know. We always think it's the one at midnight. Why do we think that? Is it a hymn that came upon a midnight clear? Is that a hymn or did I just make that up? We think it could have been, I don't know what time it was, could have been midnight. What if it was later? What if it was the fourth watch? What if they came at like three or four o'clock in the morning? Now that fits better with the rest of the story. Whatever it is, were all the shepherds awake? Were some of them asleep? Did they wake the other ones up? Don't know. There's a group of shepherds sitting around a campfire, probably, whinging to one another. Nothing exciting ever happens in our lives around here. We know where they are, out in the fields. We know they're near Bethlehem. We know it's night time. And suddenly, verse 9, an angel of the Lord appears to them. One angel, solo angel. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Think of a helicopter coming overhead with a huge spotlight shining down on you. And they were terrified. In the morning services, we've been working through the book of Exodus, and whenever the glory of God turns up like this, it indicates that God is present. God is near. And that's certainly what's happening here. The angel said to them, stop being afraid. I was already terrified. And the angel, you're not in trouble. 
In fact, the opposite. I'm here to bring you good news that, co- that will cause great joy for all people. Good news. The word that Luke uses for that is our word for the evangel, evangelization. I bring you the gospel. I bring you the evangelical news. It's good news. It's outstanding news. And the predominant emotional response to when you get this outstandingly good news is great joy. Not necessarily instantly, but ultimately and eventually in your life, there will be joy. It's fruit of the Spirit. That's what happens. Peter even talks about this joy unspeakable welling up within you. Not happiness, joy. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for everybody, for all types. Not every individual, but for every individual who responds. The defining emotion is joy. And then the angel says, today, but it's night time. Today, in the city of David, Bethlehem, just over there, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. The words are quite powerful and significant. There's a whole message you can do just in verse 11. Today, in the city of David, a saviour born to you. He is the Messiah, the promised one. And he's the Lord. Come back to that. And this is going to be the sign for you. What's the sign? You find a baby wrapped up in cloths? No, that's not the sign. That's normal. It's like saying, you're going to find a baby in a nappy. You're going to find a baby who's just been born, who's wrapped up in swaddling clothes, in cloths. And where is the child? In a manger. That's unusual. You don't put newborns in feeding troughs or feeding bags or whatever it was. That's the sign. It's in a manger, which helps us understand um, how they found the child. This will be the sign for you. You will find that babe in a manger. Um, And then one angel's not enough. God orchestrates to send a whole lot of them. A great company. How many were there, do you think? Well, I've seen the pictures, children's Bibles, you know, the sky's just filled with angels. That's probably not correct, but whatever it was, there's a group of them. And I don't know, but I'm intrigued to know, was the city of Bethlehem, the little village of Bethlehem in total darkness, and there's this very bright light going on just out of town. Did anybody wake up and see the light? We, never, we are never told that that happened. Were all the shepherds awake? Were some of them sleeping through this? Don't know. But we are told these great company of angels appeared. <laughs> like it wasn't a gradual unfolding and appearing. It was they appeared and they were glorious. They were praising God. So they were visible and they were vocal. What were they singing? Luke tells us. Glory to God in the highest heaven. So the focus is on heaven. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth peace to everyone on whom his favor rests it's limited it's not peace for all mankind irrespective it's peace for those on whom his favor rests for those who are in tune with him who are responsive to him who submit to him they experience peace Uh, peace with God as well as the peace of God indwelling they sang that how many times did they sing it don't know how long were they singing for not told but eventually the angels left and the word is they departed if they came suddenly 
they sort of rise and ascend back into heaven. They depart and the shepherds watch them leave as they return home to heaven. Um, the shepherds then say to each other, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that caught my attention, this thing that has happened. So I went book and I had a look at the text and it, actually what they said was, let's go and see this word, this report that has been made known to us. Let's go and see what they're talking about. The very um, thing that they were talking about, not just the babe, but the babe in the manger and the fact that he is the Messiah, the Saviour, he's the Lord. Let's go and see this. And so off they go. Text says that they hurried. Not sure how far they had to go, but probably not too far. It says when they found Mary and Joseph, it actually means they went searching. How did they find them? It's night time. Depending on, is it midnight? My scenario, it might be three or four o'clock in the morning. Was the fact that Mary had just given birth or maybe just recently soon, was there a lantern on or was there a light on or something? Was Joseph still out the front of the stable pacing up and down wondering what to do? There was somehow they found them, they searched. I can't imagine they went knocking on doors and waking people up. But they knew that the child was going to be in a manger. Manger suggests it's got to be a stable. Let's go and have a look at the stables. And when they do that, eventually they discover. And they go in, and the text is, I think, just beautiful. They found Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger. Who looked after the sheep? Did they all go? Bishop who... No, I won't go there. I won't tell you what he said. After having seen, I reckon they would have told the story to Mary and Joseph. This is what we have just experienced, an angel and a choir of angels. And this is the message the angel said to us. They've told that story to Mary and Joseph. I would imagine Mary and Joseph have told them what they've experienced. How Gabriel went to Mary, how Gabriel went to Joseph, how they've made this trip, starting to put things together. Verse 17 says, and then they spread the word to everyone about what? About the child. That's interesting. Jesus is the focus, not their experience of the angels. I'm quite sure they mentioned the story of the angels, but the focus is on the child. So too for us. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. They were told in order that they might tell others, so too for us. And everybody who heard it, of course, is absolutely amazed. Amazed at the messengers, not only just the angels, but it's the shepherds, these lowly shepherds, but it's the content of what they were saying. There's a baby being born, he's the promised Messiah, he is the Christ one, he is the Saviour and he is the Lord. Verse 19, Mary says, treasured all these things. She stored them in her memory, pondered them, she thought about them, rehearsed them, tried to link them up and she was entering into that as deeply as she possibly could. She still didn't have it all together. She's still trying to put it together, even though she is God's chosen one. And you'll find at the end of Luke 2.50, 
and 51, that she's still in the process of putting some things together. The shepherds returned to their sheep. Interesting. They've had this marvellous divine encounter, this wonderful spiritual experience, and they returned to their jobs. They returned changed, glorifying and praising God for all of the things that they heard and seen, and note this, which was just as they had been told. Underline that in your Bible. God always keeps his word. If God says it, he will do it. He'll be true to himself. He cannot deny himself, which was just as they had been told. Mary had the same thing. The angel said to her, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, no word of God would ever fail. Whatever God says, you can rely on it. You can bank on it. Um, so they didn't start, they didn't author a book. They didn't get a book contract. They didn't start tours. They didn't start seminars. They didn't do any of that stuff. They returned to their jobs which I think is an important application, which I'll come back to. And then note this, finally, eight days later, a week later, on the eighth day, Jesus is circumcised according to the old covenant, Jewish law, and he's given the name Jesus, which is the name that the angel gave to, for him before he was conceived. So now you've got to go back more than nine months. Mary gets a visit from Gabriel and the angel Gabriel tells her that she is going to become pregnant and she's going to have a son and she is going to give him the name Jesus. Think about Gabriel from heaven who has seen and worshipped God the Son, the Son of God himself. And Gabriel is now here delivering a message which must have been incomprehensible to him. You're going to have a child, it's going to be a son, and you're going to call that child Jesus. And that child is going to be that person. Peter hints at that, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He tells us the angels were looking into this, examining it, and trying to put the pieces together. All of this took place before then. Well, what's the application? A couple of minutes. Um, I emphasised at the beginning, this is historically true. Uh, it's true that it's historically true. It happened in space-time history. God said he was going to do it and God did it. God always keeps his word. He came, came down to us. He came to us in order to rescue us. There's a great gap between us and God and there's only one bridge across it and God is the one who built that bridge and it's Jesus. There is no other bridge. There is no other way. The only way for us to have life, eternal life, life in heaven, life in the next age is through Jesus. If you're going to be in heaven, you have to be connected to, submitted to, and walking with Jesus. There is no other way. You don't have to be Baptist, but why risk it? <laughs> Sorry. It's not about being Baptist. It's not about being anything. It's about being a follower of Jesus, a disciple of his. This thing really happened. The reason I'm a Christian is not because it makes me feel good inside. It's not because I like Christian liturgy. I like church. I, I'm a believer in Jesus because it's true. It happened. Space-time history. In the time of Augustus. In the time either of uh, Quirinius being the governor or just before he was the governor of Syria. We learn this from this wonderful story. Our times are in God's hands. He knows and he can orchestrate circumstances in our lives 
An emperor in Rome makes a political decision for taxation purposes and for recruitment purposes. He has no idea how God is going to use that decision to impact a family who now have to go from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. That decision led to this. God allowed that decision and used that decision to achieve his purposes. And he's still doing it. Don't despair with whatever's going on in our federal government or state governments or anything else. They look like they're slowly unravelling and losing control of everything. God is in control. And he's still on the throne, still working his purposes out. We might be uncomfortable with it. We need to calm our hearts and trust him. The fact that Joseph does go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, that God's overruling providence, he can do that in your life. But the amazing thing I think out of this is just the sheer reminder of God's kindness, his grace, his goodness. I don't have the words for it. All of the words are so familiar to us. On a human level, if Prince Harry and Meghan, they're having a child, what if you got a phone call saying, listen, we're coming to Australia and we want to have the child at your place. They're going to turn up with the Secret Service and the Grenadier Guards and they're going to have the child in your garage at your place. Wouldn't that be incredible? On a human level, it would be. Well, now just try to make the leap, because it's not close, it's a leap, that God the Son, Almighty, God himself, Yahweh, comes into our world, And if he had arrived with a legion of angels and was born in pomp and ceremony and divine glory, even that story would have been incredible. If he had been born in Bethlehem in the temple, in the palace, and he had been surrounded by guards and, again, the pomp and ceremony of wealth, that would have been incredible. But the fact that God Most High comes to, not only to our world, but comes to the low part of our world, He is born amongst commoners. He's born amongst ordinary people. He's born with no pomp, no ceremony. He almost came silently into the world. It's absolutely amazing what God has done. And because he came so low, he did so in order to reach us so that he could take us so high. We, through his poverty, have been made wealthy spiritually, sons and daughters of the king adopted into his forever family. That's what Christmas is reminding us of. And this child is the saviour, he is the Messiah, and he is the Lord. Let me just take a second to emphasise that. He's the deliverer from what? From our sin and from God's penalty, from God's punishment, God's wrath that's on us. He's the bridge builder forgives us if that's what you're wanting, if you're willing to receive it. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. From whom? From God. God promised to send him. Promised Adam and Eve way back in the garden. God kept his word. And then he's Lord. He's the master. Of whom is he master? Of us. He is our owner. If he is your saviour, he is your Lord. It's a package deal. You can't divide his person. If he is your saviour, he is your Lord. 
and you are to obey him. The reason he becomes resident in you is so that he can be the president of you. He's Lord. We are to obey him. If he is not your Lord, then he's not your saviour. They go together. We do have a theology which is taught in the 20th century that it's quite possible you can accept Jesus as saviour and then later on accept him as Lord. It's not true. It's not true. When you accept him, you accept him. Who is he? Saviour, Messiah and Lord. All of him. He's the saviour for all people. And the last thing I wanted to say is about the shepherds. What happened to them is what can happen to us and does happen to us. If you look at the sequence, they were living in darkness, dwelling in darkness, and suddenly a great light shone upon them. They were fearful of it, but they listened to the message, they examine it for themselves, and when they discover that it's true, they then not only tell other people, but they experience joy in themselves and they return to their jobs. What they went through is what we go through, pre-conversion and post-conversion. We're sitting in darkness. For us, the darkness of sin. Then there is a bright light. There is the revelation of God that convicts us of our sin, that shows us who Jesus is and what he's done for us. You may be terrified initially of God's wrath and the punishment that you are under, that you're headed for hell. But then, as you listen to the gospel message, there are words of comfort, words of deliverance and salvation. It might come with different intensity for each of us, but the sequence is then repeated. Post-conversion, it's the same. Even as a follower of Jesus now, there are parts of me where I sit and dwell in darkness. There are sinful parts of me and of you. But God will shine his light on that part. And initially you might be fearful. You might be scared, either of being caught out or exposed or whatever, whatever the fear is. But then as you listen to the gospel message that he has forgiven us for all our sin, including that sin that indwells me, that darkened spot, then I am comforted by that. I listen and I examine that it's true and then I receive the joy of forgiveness and the commission is the same and I am to go out and tell others. That's the process that just gets repeated and repeated and repeated in each of our lives as we follow Jesus. It's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful, inspired text for us to learn from. And the last thing, I think I said that was the last thing. I'll say this and then I will stop. What happened to the shepherds after this wonderful spiritual experience? They went back to work. God doesn't call us to be to spectacular and to the fancy and to the highlights of spiritual experiences. He calls us to follow him and love him and serve him in the ordinary things of life. They return to being shepherds. Probably better shepherds, certainly different shepherds, shepherds with a story. So you return to your jobs because that's God's desire and call and will for us to love him, serve and be with him in the ordinariness of everyday life. He's with me when I drive. He's with me when I type. He's with me when I clean. He's with me when I cook. He's with me when I'm sitting and talking to people. He's with me, growing me, changing me, and you. Let's pray. It's a great story, Heavenly Father. It's a wonderful story. I pray that you would deliver us from being 
familiar with it and give us the blessing of being amazed by it again and again and again. Open our eyes, Lord, that we can see truth. Open our eyes that we can see you and love you more. Love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And because we love you, that our lives will be transformed and we'll love one another and love others. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Thank you for this story of the shepherds. Thank you for the way you changed them and that you are changing us. We thank you in your name. Amen.